when I think about this, um, and it's not exactly a movie I'm going to endorse from the pulpit, but uh, but I uh, I'm reminded of a scene in Talladega Nights where they sit around a table to pray, and uh, Will Ferrell's character is starts to pray to sweet baby Jesus, right? Like like he's he's picturing this sweet baby, this little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, like Jesus that he's praying to, and and John C. Riley says, well, I like I think I like to think of my Jesus as wearing like a tuxedo T-shirt, you know, and and the reason that I, I I'm reminded of that is because it's not enough to just uh, to, to praise Jesus for being born, right? We need, sometimes we're not talking about the same Jesus, <laughs> right? Like we need, to, we need to have a good understanding of who Jesus is, what he's about, what he's like. And it's that image of who Jesus is, what he's about, what he's like, what he does. That's the image that, that produces the praise and the worship and the glory. That's the, that's when, when we talk about Jesus being the, the reason for the season and the reason that we celebrate Christmas, it's not just that we want to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We have to know who Jesus is. Like We have to know who it is that we're celebrating. You have to have an accurate picture of, of who he is, and that's, that's what we're doing this, this morning and, and through our Christmas series is we're trying to get a good understanding of who Jesus is. Last week, we talked about Jesus being a prophet, and I introduced you guys to the idea that uh, the, throughout church history, Jesus has been uh, thought of as a prophet, a priest, and a king. Those three roles are, are roles that Jesus fulfills uh, ever since the kind of early Christianity. They, they, they looked at Jesus as fulfilling all three of those Old Testament roles of prophet, priest, and king. And so we're exploring those three uh, roles of Jesus, those three functions of Jesus. Last week, we looked at Jesus being a prophet. This week, we're going to look at Jesus being a priest. Look with me. Hebrews chapter 4 is where, is where we're going to be this morning. Hebrews chapter 4. We were in Hebrews last week. We're, we'll be in, uh, we're here in Hebrews again this week because the writer of Hebrews uh, connects a lot of these dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He, he, he connects a lot of these dots for us between the Old Testament roles of prophet and priest and, uh, and connects them to Jesus. And so we get to see that this morning in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. That's where we're going to be this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, it says this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me pray for us. We'll get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word convicts us and challenges us, and it, it forces us to, to, to reevaluate our view of Jesus and our view of you, God, that, that they, it forces us to think uh, more clearly and more critically and, and, and think better and, uh, about who Jesus is. God, I pray this morning that you will correct any notions that we have of Jesus that are incorrect. God, that you will expose uh, the flaws in our views of Jesus, and God, that, that you will give us a, a greater appreciation and excitement for who Jesus is and what he does, God, that, that you will give us a clearer image and picture of who Jesus is, and God, that, that we will act in response to that image, God, that we will be a church that, that lives out of its conviction of who Jesus is. God, I pray that you would shape and mold us this morning through our time in the Word, that you will, you will shape us and mold us in the, in the image of Jesus, God, and that we would leave here better than when we came because of the time that we spent in your Word. Father, we love you and praise you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. 
So as I said, this morning we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is a priest. And when I say the word priest, the thing that pops into a lot of people's head is Roman Catholic priests, right? You're picturing someone with a, a collar, someone with a black shirt, maybe with the robes. Like that's, that's the image that pops into a lot of people's head when they think of priests. So I want you to hold that image in your mind, this, this Roman Catholic priest, and then throw it out because that's not at all the image that the Bible uses uh, when we're talking about Jesus being a priest. That is not the picture. What we're talking about of Jesus being a priest is the Old Testament office of priest, like the Old Testament priest with all of their rituals and all of their sacrifices and all of their service. Like what we're picturing is those Old Testament priests. A better image would be maybe think of a marriage counselor. Think of a marriage counselor who has before him two people who, uh, who are struggling, who are fighting, who there are problems in their relationship. There's tension and pain and, and separation between the two of them because of the faults and the failures and the flaws and the, and the brokenness in their relationship that is rupturing their relationship. And the marriage counselor is trying to come in and deal with the faults and the flaws and the problems that's causing separation between the two people. The Old Testament priests function like marriage counselors. That their goal is to come in and to bring together God and man, to bring them together to deal with the sin and the brokenness and the faults that are rupturing their relationship and causing separation between God and man. So when you think of the Old Testament priests, that, that's a, a, a better image to think of would be a marriage counselor who's dealing with a ruptured, broken relationship between God and man and dealing with all of the, the sin and the brokenness there and trying to heal it and repair it, and bring back together God and man. And Jesus is our high priest. Jesus fulfills that office and that role. And we're going to look at that this morning, and here's what I hope that you'll see as we explore what it means that Jesus is our high priest. Since Jesus is our high priest, we can confidently approach the throne of God for grace and endurance. If it's true that Jesus is the high priest, that he fulfills this role, this, this marriage counselor role that brings back together God and man, then we can confidently and excitedly approach the throne of God for grace and mercy and forgiveness and love and for endurance with whatever we're facing today. It, it is important to know that Jesus is our high priest. In order to, to have a good, clear evaluation of what it means for Jesus to be our high priest, we have to first go back and look at the Old Testament priests. What were they like? What was their office? And as I've already mentioned uh, briefly, the Old Testament priests acted to repair man's relationship with God. That's what the Old Testament priests did. That was their function. They acted to repair man's relationship with God. Again, think with me of, of a, a separation between God and man. Uh, think with me of a marriage counselor who's dealing with the brokenness of separation in the relationship. But the, unlike a marriage counselor, right? With a marriage counselor, you have two parties both have some flaws and faults that they're bringing into the relationship. You're dealing with all of that brokenness uh, and, and trying to repair it. With the priest, one side is completely innocent, right? It's God. He's perfect. He's holy. He's, he, is, he is almighty. Like, like, he is perfectly in the right. And then the other side is perfectly in the wrong, right? Like, like humanity is sinful and, and rebellious and broken and has, has gone away from the Lord, has introduced sin and separation from God. And so, so when priests have to come in to repair the relationship, what they're doing is they're repairing the damage that mankind has caused. Right? They're not trying to, to have God meet them in the middle or something and to have both sides acknowledge their faults and come back together. 
Priests have to figure out how to deal with the brokenness of mankind and bring mankind back to God and to heal that broken relationship. And the question that pops in a lot of people's mind, and maybe you've thought about this before and it's the question that you've had, but a lot of people look at that sin, that brokenness, that rebellion that separates man from God, and the question that pops in people's mind is, well, why doesn't God just forgive it? Why doesn't God just let it go? Right? We know that, that sin is what separates God from man. We find out in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us measure up to God's standard of perfection. We've all rebelled against God. We have all sinned, and so we are all separated from God, and the Bible tells us that we're separated from God and deserving of an eternity separated from God in hell. And that's because of our sin and our brokenness. And so for a lot of us, we think about that sin and that brokenness, and we think of God, and we think, well, why doesn't he just let it go? Why doesn't he just choose to forgive it and, 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 not, and, and not deal with it, just, just let it go, so that way we can have a restored relationship? Right? God expects us to forgive people who wrong us. He, forg- he, he expects us to turn the other cheek. Why doesn't God just, just forgive it and let it go? The problem is that God's character is holiness. God's number one attribute is that he is a holy God. He is perfect. He is righteous. That that is what he is. That is what he's like. And so God cannot tolerate sin. He cannot tolerate brokenness. Sinful people, broken people, rebellious people cannot be in the presence of God because the very nature of God demands perfection. So he cannot tolerate imperfection. He cannot tolerate unholiness. He cannot tolerate unsinfulness. It can't be in his presence. He is a holy, righteous, mighty God. And any sin, any brokenness, any rebellion disqualifies people from entering into his presence because it goes against his nature. And when you forgive something, you're still dealing with the problem. The problem just doesn't go away. You're still dealing with it. I want you to think of an example. Imagine you stole $100 from me. Right? There are, uh, please don't, but imagine like you, you did, you stole $100 from me. Uh, there are a couple different avenues that I, could, that I could follow, a couple different options for me, right? I could run after you, beat you up, and take my $100 back. That's not an option for me with some of you, but in general, like, that's an option I could pursue. That would be justice, right? Like you would get what you deserved, and I'd get my $100 back. I could also pursue the legal system, take you to small claims court, and try to get my $100 back that way, plus any court fees or anything like that. Right? That, again, that would be justice. That would be me pursuing you and getting my money back. The other option is that I forgive it. And, and I, I allow you to, to run off with my $100. Now, in that case, it's not as if that $100 never existed. Right? It's not as if you didn't steal. In that case, I have decided to bear the brunt myself, right? I've decided to bear the, the punishment and the problem on myself because, because I'm, I'm out 100 bucks, right? And I have decided that I am okay being out $100 in, in not pursuing you. That's what forgiveness means. The problem doesn't go away. It's that you're taking the problem on yourself and saying, I am, I am perfectly okay with this. Maybe not perfectly okay with this, but I am, I'm willing to accept this. This hurts this rebellion, this problem that that you have caused, I'm willing to accept it on myself. And so if God forgives sin, it's not as if you didn't sin. It doesn't just go away. If God were just to to forgive sin, that would be God saying, I'm going to accept you and your sinfulness. I'm going to accept it, and I'm going to bear that myself, and I'm just going to put up with you and your sinfulness and your brokenness. 
And we've already shown God's character does not allow that. God can't just be okay with sin. You don't want a God that's okay with sin, right? You don't want a God that's okay with a broken, messed up, horrible, unjust world. You don't want a God that isn't a God of justice. He is a God of justice and righteousness. He cannot be okay with sinfulness and brokenness. He can't just accept it as a fact and allow us to enter his presence. He can't just act like it never happened. God can't just, just wipe away sin. And so the priests are here to try to repair that relationship, to deal with the problem of sin that is separating man from God. And the writer of Hebrews gives us two interesting uh, uh, comments about the role of priests, two different things that they did. The first one is that they can deal gently with people. They dealt gently with the, the sinners around them because they were also weak. Notice with me uh, chapter 5, verse 1. In uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of man in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what, we've already, that's what we just talked about. The idea that, that, that Old Testament priests, they act to repair man's relationship with God. They act to deal with these sins and do that through, through sacrifices and offerings and gifts. Verse 2, He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when God, uh, called by God, just as Aaron was. So the writer of Hebrews gives us this picture of the way the Old Testament priesthood was supposed to work. It didn't always work this way, but this is the way it was supposed to work. The priest was to go and to offer sacrifices for himself. Right? So think in this case, as the marriage counselor, the priest is not some third party that's perfect and trying to match the two together. The priest is also part of sinful humanity that has a broken relationship with God. So his relationship with God also needs to be repaired because he's a rebel, he has sinned, he's a broken person too. And so the first thing the priest does is offer sacrifices for himself to mend and repair his relationship with God. He offers sacrifices so the blood will cover over his sins and, and lead to forgiveness for him. And then as someone who, who has had a repaired relationship with God, he, he does no right to say he's better than anyone else, right? He has no grounds for self, uh, self-righteousness. He has no grounds for arrogance. He has no grounds for any of that because he's a sinner just like everybody else. And he offered a sacrifice for, to repair his relationship with God just like anybody else should. So the way the Old Testament priests were supposed to work is that a priest would offer sacrifices for himself. And then that would motivate him to go out to the sinners and to bring them to God. To go out and say, hey, you're a sinner just like me. You and I are all broken. You and I are all separated from God, but there's a way to have a repaired relationship. And they would bring people in and offer sacrifices on their behalf to, so that they could have a repaired relationship with God as well. That's the way the priesthood was supposed to work. The Old Testament priests could deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. They could pursue after the sinners and the broken because they were also ignorant and wayward, sinful and broken. And just as their relationship with God was being repaired by these sacrifices, they could repair others through these sacrifices as well. That's the way it was supposed to work. Didn't always work that way. A lot of times the priests were arrogant and self-righteous and did not care about the sinful people around them, but the way it's supposed to work, if, if they did what they were supposed to do, offer sacrifice for themselves, sacrifice for others. The second 
important note about the work of the Old Testament priests is that they offered sacrifices for cleansing. What they actually did <clears throat> is they would offer these sacrifices for the cleansing of the sins to deal with the sins of the people around them. Now, you're, you have to forgive me. This is going to uh, require us to take uh, a little bit of a detour and get into the weeds a little bit on Old Testament priests uh, because, and, and the way that they, <clears throat> excuse me, the way that they function. Because in order to really understand Jesus as a priest, we have to understand the Old Testament priests. And most of us are not that familiar with the way that Old Testament priests functioned because they still don't function that way, right? So we need to get into the weeds a little bit about how Old Testament priests function. So when I'm talking about Old Testament priests, you can find all this information in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, a little bit in Exodus too. But when you, find, when you think about the Old Testament priests, you had the high priest, this was, uh, the very first one was a guy named Aaron. God chose a guy named Aaron, the brother of Moses, the prophet we talked about last week. God chose Aaron as the high priest. And then Aaron's son became the high priest after him. And then Aaron's son, uh, then his son became the high priest after him. And it passed down the line. So the descendants of Aaron became the high priest after him. And all the other descendants of Aaron who were not the high priest became other priests. And so all of the priests were from the line of Aaron. God chose Aaron, just as we saw in verse 4 of chapter 5. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So God chose Aaron and his descendants to be his priests among the people of Israel. And their worship all took place within the tabernacle or in the temple. When the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness... And when the Israelites marched into the promised land and conquered the promised land, their place of worship had to be mobile because they were moving. And so there was a tent that was constructed called the Tent of Meeting or the Tabernacle. That was their worship place, and that's where the priests operated. Once the, once the kingdom became more firmly established, they built a temple that, that was just like the, the, uh, the, the tabernacle, the tent, but more permanent, a little more ornate. Right, so that's where the priests operated, was in the tabernacle, in that tent. And here's the, here's the layout in that tabernacle. So it's a pretty simple setup, and it's three different layers. Think of, think of a, a bullseye, where you're getting closer and closer to the middle. So on the outside, there's a gate, kind of a fenced-in area, and on the outside, there was an altar and a basin. This is where the priests would offer up sacrifices and offerings for the people that, that came to offer them. So anyone could come inside that little outer area, they could, they could bring in their sacrifices. The priests would offer up those sacrifices for the sins of the people that came there, right? That's where all the sacrifices would take place. And then in the tent itself, you get into that first layer where that first uh, curtain is. There are a couple different pieces of furniture in there, and the, the priest would go in every single day, and they would follow little rituals in there and do acts of worship in that first tent. But in the second, in the middle of uh, the center of the tabernacle, that, that middle room was called the Holy of Holies. And in that room was the Ark of a Covenant, this golden box. And on top of the golden box, there was a golden seat. And the idea of the Holy of Holies is that the presence of God was there. That the fullness of the presence of God was in the Holy of Holies. That's why it was called the Holy of Holies. And God was sitting there above the seat on top of that, uh, uh, that golden box. And every single day, 364 days a year, the priests would go into that first room, but they would not go into that middle room. They could not go into the Holy of Holies because the presence of God was there, and they are sinful, broken, rebellious people. And if they stepped foot into the Holy of Holies, they would die. 
And what you see in the Holy of Holies taking place is that inside that golden box were the Ten Commandments. And God, from his spot, would look down at the Ten Commandments, and he would look out at his people. So he would see the law they were supposed to follow, and he would look out and see their sinfulness and their brokenness and their rebellion. And so every single day, the anger of God is welling up, and judgment is being restored for them. Wrath is being stored up for them, and God would pour that out on his people because he's looking down at their sin, and he's looking out at their rebellion, and he sees it day after day after day, and the priests can't go in because they die. And so day after day after day, the wrath of God is being stored up for his people, except for one day a year. One day a year, there was what's called the Day of Atonement. The word atonement means at one mint. It was a day when, when it was meant to bring God and man back together. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go out to that altar, and he would sacrifice a sacrifice for himself to cleanse himself, and he would sacrifice a sacrifice for the people of Israel. And then he'd take an incense and he'd fill that holy of holies with smoke so he couldn't see anything. And then he'd go in there with the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on that seat on the top of the golden box, on the top of, uh, top of the Ark of the Covenant. And the idea there is that now when God looks down, he doesn't see the sin of his people. He doesn't see the Ten Commandments. Now when God looks down, he sees the, the blood of that perfect sacrifice. And so the sins of the people of Israel have been covered over and the people of Israel's relationship with God has been restored. Once a year, every year, the high priest would go in to offer these sacrifices for the cleansing of the people of Israel. Once a year, every year, they would continue to put that blood on the altar to appease the wrath of God and to deal with the sin separating God and man. But there's a problem with that. I don't know if you see it or not. But the problem with that is they had to keep offering it every single year. Year after year after year, the priests went in and they offered the sacrifice that was supposed to restore man's relationship with God. And the other 364 days, they had to stay out of the Holy of Holies because their relationship with God was not restored. He was still a holy God and they were still sinful people. If it worked, if the sacrifice actually worked the way it was supposed to and restored man's relationship with God, there shouldn't be a holy of holies anymore. They should be able to walk in whenever they wanted because they had a restored relationship with God. But instead, every single day, day after day after day after day, the priests would continue to offer sacrifices for themselves and for the people. And every single year, once a year, they would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the altar to repair man's relationship with God, to bring them together. And year after year after year after year, it wouldn't work. Man was not cleansed. Man was not restored. Man was not brought back into a relationship with God. It did not work. Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews points this out to us in Hebrews chapter 10. He says this in verse 4. Oh, sorry. He says this uh, in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? So again, that's what we just pointed out. If it worked 
They shouldn't have to keep offering it. It should have been restored. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So under the Old Testament priesthood, these priests were offering up sacrifices of bulls and goats and, and pouring out their blood and pouring the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And they were trying to use the blood of bulls and goats to cleanse over their sin. And the writer of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats is not going to fix the problem. The problem is between man and God. And introducing some animal from the pasture is not going to fix it. Right? Imagine again that uh, I came up to you and I kicked you in the shins. Right? It's really painful. I, shins are the, I've hit my shins on these chairs so many times. Like, I know how painful it is to be hit in the shins. So imagine I come up to you and I hit you in the shins. Now there's a problem between you and me. There's probably a problem before. I don't know why I would have hit, kicked you in the shins if there wasn't. But, uh, but now there's a problem. I, uh, you, again, you, can, you want justice. So imagine that you're, you're waiting for the right moment to kick me back. <laughs> like you, are, you are storing up the power of your leg to kick me back in the shins and to get the justice that you deserve. But imagine I come to you, and, and I am really apologetic. I say, look, I know what I did was wrong. I know I should not have kicked you in the shins. And to make it up to you, I'm going to punt a cat halfway across the room. Like, some of you are cat, uh, you hate cats, and so you're like, all right, that's a fair deal. Uh, but most of you are like, yeah, you're not even after that. You're just introducing some random animal. Right, that doesn't actually fix the problem between you and me. That's not justice. That's the idea here of blood of bulls and goats, that the problem is between man and God. There's a, a rebellion, a brokenness between mankind and their creator, and mankind can't just say, all right, well, we'll kill a cow and make it even. <laughs> like, we'll, kill, we'll kill some goats and call it a fair deal. Like, the problem of sin has to be dealt with between man and God. So the sacrifices that the priest offered every year did not work. So the question then becomes, why did God ask them to, to do these sacrifices? Why did God tell them to offer these sacrifices year after year after year if they didn't work? The reason for that is because these sacrifices beautifully painted the picture of the ministry of Jesus. They beautifully look forward to the, to the ministry that Jesus would fulfill as our high priest. I want you to look and the fact that Jesus is our high priest, that he is the one that, that fulfills this role better than any of the Old Testament priests could, that he actually does the job that the priests were supposed to do and repairs man, man's relationship with God. Jesus acts to repair man's relationship with God. Just as the Old Testament priest acted on man's behalf, Jesus acts as that marriage counselor to deal with the sin and to bring man and God back together. The Old Testament actually looks forward to Jesus as a priest. It actually prophesies the fact that Jesus was going to be a priest. And the writer of Hebrews points this out back in chapter 5. Turn back with me to, to Hebrews chapter 5 and, and verse 4, which we read earlier. It says, No one takes this honor on himself, the honor of being a priest, but only when God, when called by God, just as Aaron was. Verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he sells elsewhere in another place. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So uh, in verse 10 also re uh, repeats this idea. Jesus was designated by God a high priest after the order 
of Melchizedek. So way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, Abraham meets a priest of God. This is before Aaron was born. This is before any of the, the sacrifices were, were instituted, before the tabernacle was built. Aaron, uh, Abraham meets this guy named Melchizedek, who is a priest of God. And the writer of Hebrews points out three really interesting things about this Melchizedek. Number one is his name. In, in ancient Hebrew, the word melech means king, and the word sedek means righteousness. righteousness. So you put those together, melech, sedek, Melchizedek, you get the king of righteousness. So his name means king of righteousness. He's also known as the prince of Salem. Again, in ancient Hebrew, the word shalom means peace. And so that Melchizedek is the prince of Salem, prince of shalom. He's the prince of peace. So here's the king, the king of righteousness, the prince of peace. And the third thing that the writer of Hebrews points out is that we don't get any more of Melchizedek in the book of Genesis. We get this one event where Abraham offers sacrifices, and then that's it. We don't, we don't get the story of Melchizedek dying. We don't get the story of his priesthood passing on to somebody else. Like We don't get any of that. And so the, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is it gives the illusion that Melchizedek never dies, that his, that his priesthood continues forever. Now, authors debate back and forth whether Melchizedek was, a, uh, it was Jesus in the Old Testament or if it was a person uh, that modeled the ministry of Jesus and foreshadowed the ministry of Jesus. And I'm going to let smarter people than me make that determination. But it's, that's less important for this. What matters is that Jesus is made a priest under the order of Melchizedek, meaning he picks up the priesthood that Melchizedek set down. He, Jesus, just like Melchizedek, Jesus is the king of righteousness. Jesus is the prince of peace. And Jesus is the one who has a priesthood that doesn't end like the Aaronic priesthood. The, the priesthood of Jesus is going to last forever. He's not going to pass it on to somebody else. He's not going to die. His priesthood is going to last forever. He is made a priest by God. And just like the Old Testament priests, Jesus is able to sympathize with us because of his humanity. The Old Testament priests were able to, to sympathize with people because they were also sinful. Jesus isn't sinful, but, he's, but he is human. I want you to look with me in, in verse 7 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The idea there of being made perfect is not that Jesus somehow became perfect. He was already perfect. That word there, that idea, is that he became complete. So here's the thing. The damage is between God and man. The, the brokenness occurred between God and human beings. And God can't just take on the, the, the affront himself. Right? He can't just let it go. He has to deal with the sin of his people. And the one who caused the problem was man. So the solution has to come from mankind. And so what did God do? He decided to send Jesus, God himself, and he added humanity to his deity. And he came and he experienced life as a human being. He came as a baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. God himself took on humanity. 
God himself experienced what he experienced. God himself said, you know what? I can't handle this myself. I, I, can't, I can't just let sin go. I have to deal with the problem. And so God took it upon himself and said, I will add humanity to my deity. And I will solve the problem that way. So Jesus is able to sympathize with us because he's also human. He knows what it's like to have bad days. Jesus knows what it's like to be sad and to be angry. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted with sin. Jesus knows what it's like to be human. That's why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 14, what I read earlier, says that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens and we should be able to hold fast our confessions because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so we know that Jesus knows what it's like to be human. He was fully human. He knew exactly what it's like to be a person and he can sympathize with us in our weakness. He deals gently with us in our brokenness because he knows what it's like to be a person. And unlike the Old Testament priest, Jesus is the effectual sacrifice for our cleansing. Jesus doesn't just produce sacrifices and and do these things, these rituals, in order to try to cleanse people. Jesus is the sacrifice that cleanses people from their sins. Praise the Lord, yeah. Look at me in uh, chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 26. says, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus has no need, like those high priests, the, the Old Testament high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The writer of Hebrews draws on this imagery of the day of atonement, and that day of atonement paints the beautiful picture of what Jesus did on the cross. Because like the Old Testament high priest, on the day of atonement, Jesus died on a cross. He poured out his blood for the salvation of mankind. And then the writer of Hebrew goes on to to give us this imagery that, that Jesus went before the Father, that he went into the presence of the Father carrying his own blood, not the blood of bulls, not the blood of goats, but his own blood. And he poured it out before the Father to cover over the sin of mankind. It wasn't a, a, an ineffective sacrifice. It wasn't some third party. It was the sin, the blood of mankind poured out to cover over the sins of the world. And then, and then what did Jesus do after he poured out his blood before God, after he, after he laid out his sacrifice to cover over people's sins? He sat down. The sacrifice was complete. The the, the ministry of the priesthood was done in that respect. The sacrifice had been made. The blood was poured out. Mankind's forgiveness had had been assured through the blood of Jesus. He didn't need to offer sacrifices again and again and again because the way to salvation had already been paid. I want you to think about the the death of Jesus. What happened when he was on the cross? As Jesus was dying on the cross, as he breathed his last breath, the curtain in the temple, the one that separated mankind from the Holy of Holies, was ripped from top to bottom. And that was God's way of saying that the way to me has been opened now. The sacrifice has been paid. Forgiveness of sins is available. And you can have a restored relationship with God through the blood of Jesus. He effectively offered a sacrifice for our sins through his blood. 
He chose to, to die on a cross so that you and I could have a restored relationship with God, that our relationship could be paired. His death on the cross dealt with the sin that separates us and God, and God, uh, Jesus brings us together. Through faith in Jesus, you can have a restored relationship with God because of his ministry as a priest. There are a couple things uh, that we can do to respond to that idea of Jesus as a high priest. First one is have a restored relationship with God. It, it, some of us need to, to, have our, uh, to, to, to respond in faith. Like some of us are still separated from God. We are still broken. We are still removed from the presence of God because our sin is still before God. We have not trusted in Jesus for salvation. We haven't put our faith and our hope and our trust in him to cover over our sins. So instead, we are still separated from God. So if that's you and you are still separated from God today, I'm not calling you to do anything. There's no ritual that you need to follow. There's no, no certain words you need to say. There's no rites you need to do. What the word of God is calling you to do is to place your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus. He already did the work. The blood has already been poured out. The sacrifice has been made and God has given you an opportunity to have a restored relationship with him, to repair your relationship with him if you place your faith and trust in Jesus. You submit to him so you, and, and believe that his sacrifice will save you. So that's you today. No other response is necessary. The response for you is to place your faith and hope and trust in Jesus. If you've already placed your faith and trust in Jesus, the way that we respond to Jesus being the high priest is by confidently praising the name of the Lord in everything we do. The, salvation is not this get out of hell free card and it's not an entry ticket into heaven right that's not the point of salvation salvation means that we can go into the throne room of god we can now enter the holy of holies because our relationship with god has been restored we can now behold the fullness of the glory of God because we have a, a right relationship with him. And so we, as people who've been redeemed and saved and set free by the blood of Jesus, should confidently and excitedly proclaim the name of Christ. We gather together and we worship and praise the Lord through song because we've been redeemed and set free from sin and death. We, we study the word of God because we want to know God better. We want to learn him, learn more about him in excitement and joy to know the God who saved us. We go out into the world and we proclaim the gospel to the lost and bring, lift up the name of Jesus in everything we do because we've been redeemed and set free. And like those Old Testament priests, we want to see other people redeemed and set free as well. We should confidently praise the Lord in everything we do because Jesus is our high priest and he's made a way to have a restored relationship with him. Third thing that you can do, knowing that Jesus is our high priest, as we can come to him with all of our problems, all of our flaws, all of our failures, because he understands what it's like to be human. He understands what it's like to have bad days, to go through difficult seasons. As bad as, as the things you're going through, you say, you know, I don't, I don't know that Jesus really understands how bad things, the things I'm going through. Jesus never dealt with this particular situation. That's, that may be true. But Jesus dealt with death on a cross. Jesus was flogged for us. He bled out and suffocated over several hours on the cross for us. He knows what it's like to go through pain and suffering and sorrow. He was abandoned by everybody he'd poured into for over three years. He knows what it's like to have problems and pain and sorrow. He knows what it's like to be human. 
He knows what it's like to be tempted. He never gave in to it, but he knows what it's like. So if you're going through something difficult, if you have hard times, if you have problems, that, and life seems horrible, know that Jesus understands what you're going through, and you can go before him, and you can bring it to him. And, and as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, you can go before him for grace and mercy and, and help in time of need. Go before him and say, God, I am really struggling with this. And I need help. I need, I need mo- uh, energy for endurance. I need, I need, I need uh, confidence in you, God. I need you to help me fix my eyes on you and help me keep going because things are difficult. My times are hard. Temptation feels overwhelming. And so you have a high priest who knows what it's like and will help you. You can go before him. And you can take those things to him. And he will help you out in your time of need. Jesus is our high priest. That is the image of Jesus I hope that you hold as as incredible as the roles of prophet and king are and as highly important as they are. And uh, I'm not going to discount either of those. It's extremely important that you understand that Jesus is our priest, that he has made everything right between us and God if we'll place our faith and hope in him. And that is cause for excitement and joy for those who know eternal life. That is cause of hope and endurance for us who can go before him for hope and, 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 and energy and encouragement. And that is cause of excitement. And if you have never placed your faith in him, that there is a way for you to have a repaired relationship with God. In just a second, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. If that's you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, this morning is the morning that you can place your faith in him for the very first time. This morning is the morning that you can have a restored relationship with God, that the separation goes away and you are brought together. Jesus has already made it possible. He has already paid the price. He has already poured out his blood as a sacrifice for you. All you need to do is place your faith in him. If that's you and you've never done that, then this morning is the morning that you want to place your faith in Jesus. And what I want to invite you to do is while we sing, I'm going to be standing right here I would love for you to come up. I would love to pray with you and then talk with you after the service about what it means to follow Jesus. If you don't want to come up here, we'll have people in the back who would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. But do not leave here this morning without having a repaired relationship with the creator of the universe. He loved you enough to send his son to die for you, to add humanity to his deity, to deal with the problem. God wants to have a repaired relationship with you. Do not leave here this morning still in separation from God. Place your faith and hope and trust in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the eternal life that is available in Jesus. God, I thank you that that we have the opportunity to, to enter into the presence of God, that we have the opportunity to come before your throne and dwell with you for all of eternity. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here who does not have a repaired relationship with you, God, I pray that this morning would be the morning that you would restore them, that this morning would be the morning that they place their faith in Jesus, that they submit to him as Lord, they trust in his sacrifice to save them so that this morning would be the morning that they have a repaired relationship. God, I pray for for those of us who, who trust in you, who have been restored and repaired in our relationship with you, who have peace with you, God, I pray that you would give us joy and excitement and encouragement in our times of trouble. Father, we love you and we praise you. We pray that the the glorious good news of the gospel would compel us in every moment of every day. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.